Congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ. The book of Daniel is a fascinating book. It's a blend of exciting stories and strange visions. And it takes place during a pivotal point in Israel's history. The book begins with Daniel being taken into exile. And it ends just after God's people return 70 years later. So Daniel lived during the whole period of exile. Now his book is basically separated into two halves. Chapters 1 through 6 contain all the stories about Daniel. And chapters 7 through 12 contain his visions. And chapters 10 through 12 contain the one vision that concludes the book. The vision that gets at the heart of what the book of Daniel is really about. And chapter 10 is the introduction to this vision. And it's a long introduction where Daniel describes in detail this mysterious visitor and his own response to that visitor. We're also given some tantalizing glimpses into the workings of the spiritual realm. And since this chapter introduces the message that comes in chapter 11, we have to look ahead to chapter 11 to understand ours. Now, chapter 11 contains a complicated message. You almost need a map in front of you and little figures representing the kings in order to understand what's going on. Yet Daniel's visitor intends that complicated message to be a comforting one. So when we navigate the remarkable contents of chapter 10, we have to do it with the angel's words in verse 19 of our chapter in mind. Fear not, peace be with you, be strong and of good courage. So I preach to you Daniel 10 under the following theme and points. The certainty of God's victory leads to strength and courage. First, Daniel pleads for revelation. Second, God responds with a majestic angel. And third, the angel delivers words of certain victory. So first, Daniel pleads for revelation. Now the passage opens with Daniel fasting and praying on the banks of the Tigris River. And he's quite specific, too, in telling us the time and place of his vision. With his previous visions, he would mention the year that the vision took place, but here he gives the exact date. It's the 24th day of the first month of the third year of King Cyrus. Because he's so precise, we can date it on our own calendar. Daniel had this vision on May the 11th, 535 B.C. There's a reason he wants his readers to know exactly when it was that he was praying and fasting. It's the first month of the year, the month of Nisan. And just like we have New Year's celebrations in our first month, the peoples of the ancient Near East had them too. Except their celebrations lasted for 11 days, and they started on the second day of the month. So the fact that Daniel has his vision on the 24th day and has been fasting for three full weeks means that his fast began on the third day of the month, so right after the 11-day party got started. Now he's letting his readers know that while everyone else was away celebrating, he was fasting. In fact, he wasn't even near the celebration. Daniel lived in Babylon, which is on the Euphrates River. But Daniel was fasting and praying on the banks of the Tigris, which is well away from Babylon. 
so he'd deprived himself of both his comforts and his home. And why would this have meant something to his readers? Well, we have to know what the situation was like for the Israelites at the time. Daniel has this vision in the third year of King Cyrus. Well, in the first year of King Cyrus, two years before, the Israelites had been allowed to return to Jerusalem. We read all about that in the book of Ezra. A large group of Israelites returns to Jerusalem and begins rebuilding the city, most notably the temple. And the temple was the symbolic heart and soul of God's people. Rebuilding the temple meant that their exile was finally coming to an end. God's anger with them was satisfied. Like a married couple who had been separated and were now coming back together, they could look forward to a time of renewed commitment, a fresh start. And it was certainly an exciting time for Jews everywhere, even those Jews like Daniel who didn't return to Jerusalem. But the book of Ezra also tells us that this exciting time came quickly to an end. In their second year, after having laid the foundation of the temple, the Jews found themselves in trouble. Ezra 3, verses 4 and 5 says, Then the people of the land, and these would have been people settled there from other parts of the empire, discouraged the people of Judah and made them afraid to build and bribed counselors against them to frustrate their purpose. Now, you can imagine the blow this must have been to the Jews. They had come back with such optimism and hope, and now this. But what's more, they must have wondered what God was doing. He had told them 70 years of exile, and now those 70 years were up. The king of the empire had even given his personal command for the Jews to return. Was God giving his blessing and then suddenly taking it away? Was God still angry with them? As Ezra wrote, God's people were discouraged. Their hopes were frustrated. So when the Jews of that time would have read the first few verses of Daniel 10, they would have understood the importance immediately. Here was a brother of theirs, a brother who had wealth and a position of power in the Persian Empire, who lived in one of its major cities. Yet during this New Year celebration, This brother had forsaken his prestige, his home, his comforts in order to sit in the dirt beside a river in humility before God. Daniel was suffering in solidarity with the people in Jerusalem. And it wasn't him alone, but in verse 7, he mentions that there were others there with him. He's letting the Jews in Jerusalem know that they're certainly not alone in their frustration and discouragement. They had certainly not been forgotten by those Jews who were still living comfortably. In fact, those Jews were actively supplicating God, petitioning God on behalf of the Jews in Jerusalem. Now, this practice of petitioning God on behalf of his people has always been a a mark of godly leaders, especially in the Old Testament. Abraham did it, Moses, David, Isaiah... The New Testament speaks of Christ being our advocate before the Father in heaven. So the Old Testament leaders who prayed for God's people pointed the way to Christ. And Daniel, dirty and uncomfortable, on the banks of an alien river, advocates before God for his people. 
and God listens to Daniel. In verse 12, the man in linen says, Fear not, Daniel, for from the first day that you set your heart to understand, your words have been heard, and I have come in response to your words. Now, Daniel was an imperfect man. And if that's God's response to an imperfect man like Daniel, what do you think is God's response to his own perfect son? And if Daniel understood the anxiety of God's people from afar, how much more does Christ, whose spirit dwells in our inner being, understand our anxiety? And Christ is the one who advocates for you before the Father. It must have meant a great deal for the Jews in Jerusalem to read that Daniel was praying and fasting on their behalf. But while Daniel was humbled in the dirt beside the river, Christ was humbled to death. And while Daniel's humility led to a revelation for Jerusalem, Christ's humility led to the eternal security of Jerusalem, the security of the church. It's in the deepest humility of the cross that God shows his highest love. And the foundation of the church is rooted in the deep humility of the cross. And that's why there is no force under heaven that can ever shake the church from its foundations. So Daniel's humility points to Christ's humility. And in our second point, we'll see God's response to Daniel's humility. Now Daniel has been at the Tigris for three weeks, And finally, he receives a visitor in response. Now, Daniel has never had a visitor quite like this one. And he spends some time describing what he looks like. And this isn't the only time in scripture that someone appears like this. A well-known example is when John sees Christ in the book of Revelation. And this has led some people to conclude that the man that Daniel is seeing is Christ before his incarnation. There certainly are similarities. They're both wearing robes. One has a golden sash. The other has a golden belt. They have eyes of fire, shining faces, legs like burnished bronze, and a similar roaring sound to their voices. But Ezekiel has a similar kind of a vision in Ezekiel 1. And there, the beings that appear this way are cherubim. They're angels. So there are similarities between the man that Daniel sees and between Christ, who John sees. But there are also similarities between this man and the cherubim. So we can't simply look at Daniel's description and conclude from that that he's seeing Christ. Because we know that angels can appear that way too. But his description does tell us something important. And there's actually a third connection in scripture to the way this man appears. And that's the outfit of the Old Testament priests. The priests wore a linen robe and a golden sash. Their torso was covered in jewels. They had a gold plate on their forehead that would have flashed in the sunlight. And the purpose of making the garments look this way, the Lord says to Moses, is for glory and for beauty. And we can take that to the way the man in linen appears too. He's wearing the heavenly version of, of priestly garments, garments that were worn for glory and for beauty. Now, we can't know for certain whom this angelic being is. Daniel doesn't tell us who he is. 
But the fact that he tells us in detail what he looks like shows us that it's not his identity, but his appearance that matters. And what is significant about the fact that this man appears with the full glory and beauty of heaven? Well, it shows Daniel the importance of the message that he's bringing. It shows the seriousness of it, the greatness of it. As mentioned earlier in verse 12, the angel has come because of Daniel's words. And Daniel had been praying on behalf of Jerusalem. So the dignity and the majesty of this angel is God's way of letting his people know that he takes their situation very seriously. And this is perhaps also why the angel is so quick to explain why he didn't come sooner. It certainly wasn't because Daniel had been ignored. On the contrary, the angel says in verse 12 that from the first day, Daniel's words had been heard. Instead, the angel explains his delay in verse 13. The prince of the kingdom of Persia withstood me 21 days. Now, Daniel had been praying for three weeks, 21 days. So the angel's telling him that he wasn't able to come at all during that time because of spiritual resistance. Now, this is a very rare moment in scripture where we're shown a specific event in the spiritual realm. This angelic being had somehow been resisted by the prince of Persia. Now, some people, among them John Calvin, think that the prince of Persia was a man, one of the sons of Cyrus. But this doesn't fit very well with what was happening at the time. Cyrus had a good relationship with the Jews, and none of his sons were persecuting them. In fact, Scripture doesn't tell us that any individual person was responsible for the persecution in Jerusalem. It's simply that the people of the land were stirred up against God's people. So it's more likely that the prince of Persia is a spiritual being. Michael, whom we know is an angel, is also called a prince. Now this prince of Persia must have been a very powerful being. This man in linen who appears to Daniel is clearly an important angel, but the prince of Persia is able to resist him. It was only when Michael came to help that the angel was free to leave and come to Daniel. And he provides an even more striking detail at the end of verse 21. He says to Daniel, There is none who contends with me against these except Michael, your prince. So not only are the forces of darkness powerful, but the forces of light are weak. Only Michael and this angel stand against them. Now, these verses have led to all kinds of speculation among Christians. Some speculate that there are territorial spirits, spirits that are assigned to various regions of the earth. After all, the angel speaks here about the prince of Persia, and in verse 20, he speaks about the prince of Greece. In fact, in verse 13, the man in linen says that he himself had been left with the kings of Persia. So their jurisdiction was his responsibility. So then some Christians take this forward to today and argue that we have good and evil national spirits, a prince of Canada, for example. And it's our job to find out who these evil spirits are and to oppose them. After all, Paul does say in Ephesians 6, For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, 
against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. So the battle that Daniel saw a glimpse into is certainly a real one and an ongoing one. And in that sense, we can appreciate the fervor that some of our brothers and sisters in Christ have in fighting these battles. But we should also recognize the human tendency to get carried away with what is mysterious and exotic. Because this battle is the regular battle that we all know. It's the battle against sin in our hearts. The battle against wolves in the church. The battle against wickedness in the world around us. Against anything that sets itself up against the truth of God. Paul's point in Ephesians is that the real threat to us is spiritual and not physical. And we don't resist this threat by prying into the mysteries of the spiritual world, by identifying evil spirits or something. We resist the threat of the cosmic powers, Paul says, by committing ourselves to the truth, to understanding what God has given us in his word and in wielding that word like a sword. We resist this threat by placing our faith where it belongs and the eternally secure foundation of Jesus. In this way, faith becomes a shield to us. And above all, we resist this threat through prayer. Daniel 10 shows us that God certainly hears the prayer of a humble man. And we have the privilege of praying in the name of Jesus Christ of approaching God with his humility. So how much more than Daniel's prayer will God hear our prayers? Yet this chapter also shows us that God may not respond as we would like, and that the reason could be beyond anything we can imagine. Yet despite that, we must always pray persistently. Daniel prayed for three weeks, and Paul commands us in Ephesians 6 to pray at all times, in the, pray at all times in the Spirit, with all prayer and supplication. Because when we pray persistently, again and again, for the same thing, then our persistence itself becomes a prayer. It becomes a plea to God to address what we've repeatedly been bringing. It shows God just how serious we are about the matter. Now, this angel has come in response to Daniel's persistent prayers. Daniel doesn't record his prayer for us, but we can tell from the angel's words what it was that Daniel was praying for. In verse 12, the angel acknowledged that Daniel had set his heart to understand. And understand what? Well, in verse 14, the angel says, I have come to make you understand what is to happen to your people in the latter days. For the vision is for days yet to come. So as we've already seen, Daniel was concerned about the well-being of his people. And the angel was going to address his prayers by bringing him a vision of the future. This is our third point. Now this vision was going to be different from previous visions. In chapters 7 and 8, Daniel had seen various beasts and animals, each representing different kingdoms and empires. These visions had given Daniel a broad view of history, 
of the rise and fall of empires over hundreds of years. And those visions had been communicated through powerful and even frightening images. But this vision wasn't going to be like that. The angel says to Daniel in verse 21, I will tell you what is inscribed in the book of truth. It's as though he's bringing Daniel a page of God's very detailed plans for the future. No images, no symbols, just the facts themselves. Now in verse 21, the editors of the ESV have put a colon after the words book of truth. Now this suggests that what follows is the beginning of what is inscribed in the book of truth. But that likely doesn't begin until chapter 11, verse 2, when the angel says, and now I will tell you what is the truth. Now I will show you the truth. So verse 21b and, verse, and chapter 11, verse 1 belong together as kind of an aside. So it reads like this. There is none who contends by my side against these except Michael, your prince. And as for me, in the first year of Darius the Mede, I stood up to confirm and strengthen him. So the hymn there doesn't refer to Darius the Mede. It refers to Michael. The angel speaking to Daniel strengthened Michael in the first year of Darius the Mede. So if we take together what the angel says about him and Michael throughout the whole passage, then we have the following. Michael came to help Daniel's visitor when he was opposed by the prince of Persia. And Daniel's visitor strengthened Michael in the first year of Darius the Mede. And these two angels are standing alone against the forces of darkness. Now these are more than just interesting facts about the spiritual world. It's meant to teach God's people something. It's meant to show us something about God's strength. Throughout chapter 10, Daniel is in a state of shock. He can hardly speak, and he's always on the verge of fainting. And he spends quite a bit of time describing his weakness for us. And then in verses 18 and 19, the angel reaches out and touches Daniel, and this touch strengthens him. So Daniel is now able to speak with the angel and hear what the angel has to say. Now the reason Daniel thoroughly describes his weakness is because it plays into the theme of these final chapters. Daniel is overwhelmed. The angels are overwhelmed. God's people are overwhelmed. Yet in the midst of this opposition, there is strength. The angel strengthens Daniel, and the angels strengthen each other. The forces of darkness may be strong. They may have overwhelming odds. But the strength of God cuts through it with ease. The strength of God gives Daniel exactly what he needs in that moment. The strength of God gives the angels exactly what they need to stand firm against the enemy. It's sufficient, and it can't be overcome. And this strength is what the angel's revelation is meant to bring to God's people. He touches Daniel, and Daniel is strengthened. And his revelation touches God's people, and God's people are strengthened. And how does this revelation do that? What is it about all the minute details of chapter 11 that gives God's people strength? Well, it tells them two things. 
It tells him that every single event in history, every moment, every decision of every king has been ordained by God. The future has been written down in all of its details. But more importantly, it also tells them that come what may, God's people will always prevail. The angel speaks of a time in the future when the prince of Persia will be replaced by the prince of Greece. A southern king and a northern king will fight each other, and Israel is going to be caught in the middle. An especially wicked king will arise, and he'll try to destroy the faith of Israel. So the weakness that God's people are facing now, the opposition in Jerusalem, is only just the beginning. Yet despite the great weakness that is coming, where all will seem hopeless, God's people will prevail. His people will win. He's arranged every detail of history in such a way that his people always win. And it has always pleased God, as Paul says, to choose the weak things of the world to shame the strong, the foolish things to shame the wise. For when were God's people the weakest? When did it appear as though God's great plan had failed? When Jesus died on the cross, it must have seemed as though Satan had won. The Savior that God had sent was dead. Yet in this apparent weakness, there was eternal strength. For the descent into hell and the death that Christ suffered on the cross was our descent into hell and our death. In the death of Christ, there was life for all of God's people. In the weakness of the cross, there was the strength of salvation. And this is the great revelation that strengthens God's people. Chapter 10, verse 1 says that a word was revealed to Daniel. And John 1, verse 1 says that the word became flesh. The revelation that Daniel longed for, the revelation that the world really needed, was the revelation of God in Jesus Christ. The revelation that the angel brought to Daniel addressed the insecurity of God's people in Jerusalem at that time. But the revelation of Christ addresses the true insecurity of the world for all time, the insecurity of sin. The fact that living a sinful life, a life in rebellion against God, is the true discouragement and the true frustration. Without Christ, the world would have been forever at the mercy of the princes of Persia and Greece. It would have forever been in a state of shock, like Daniel. But Christ is the revelation who broke that darkness. He is the revelation who imparts eternal and unbreakable strength to those who come to him in weakness. Revelation 12 says that when Christ was revealed, Michael and the other angels, weak as they once were, overcame their enemies and defeated them. The strength of God was made victorious in Christ. Now, this doesn't mean that the devil and his angels no longer oppose us. They certainly do. We can see the forces of the world lining themselves up against the truth. And there certainly are times where it looks hopeless. But the victory of Christ, the revelation of the word, means that there's no more uncertainty. 
we know for certain how history is going to end. This is why we can lift our hope and our joy out of the present and place it in the future. Because we know that every tiny detail of history has been ordained by God and has been ordained in such a way that his people always win. So I will close with what Daniel says about the last days in chapter 12. But at that time, your people shall be delivered, everyone whose name shall be found, who shall be found written in the book. And many of those who sleep, who sleep in the dust of the earth, shall awake, some to everlasting life and some to shame and everlasting contempt. And those who are wise shall shine like the brightness of the sky above, and those who turn many to righteousness like the stars forever. Amen. Let's respond with the words of hymn 69, stanzas 1, 2, and 3. <clears throat>